Just a heads up that this interview is discussing sensitive material. We are having a conversation around the genetics of the uh, sex and gender of human beings. Some of this may be triggering to individuals who segments, uh, as we discuss kind of the behavior of society at times and specifically within our religious system of Mormonism, the harm and trauma that's caused. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I think this would be a great one to share with friends and family so that they can understand the biology and genetics of sex and gender. Uh, And now on to the interview. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, the Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Crystal Scott, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Thank you. I am very well. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I'm I'm glad for this chance for you to sit down with me. We were just talking before we started recording that this is such a such a big issue. And you on at Sunstone, you gave a presentation on the material that we're going to cover today. And uh, you it was so data driven, and it, I just sat there in awe and really appreciated your session because we were just talking that it takes so much data to for someone to hear and see before they'll change their mind. <clears throat> they'll change their mind on things that are important. And, and so this conversation is so important. Before we get started, though, would you mind just introducing people uh, kind of to yourself, let people know who you are, kind of what your education is, and any other details about yourself that you'd like to share? Oh, sure. Um, so my name is Crystal Scott Ivy. I live in Boise right now. Um, I moved to Boise four years ago from Virginia. In Virginia, I got my education a bachelor's degree at a small women's college, which is now co-ed. And then I went on to University of Virginia um, because it was close and because I already had a family and I didn't want to move. But that was actually a very fortunate decision because UVA is an excellent school. And when I started my graduate work, I got into the lab for one of my research um, rotations with Ray Keller. And Ray Keller is extremely famous around the world for his work as an embryologist. So I um, studied embryology under one of the most well-informed people on earth. And I, my project was focused on neural development of the frog, actually, because frogs are very much like humans. But it was, um, it was really that experience that led me to do lots of embryology go wrong during embryology. And um, 
at the same time, I was teaching at the small women's college. I had gotten my bachelor's degree. I was teaching a course called Biology of Women. And um, we talked about a lot of topics and embryonic development and intersex was one of the conditions we talked about. Excellent. So at Sunstone, I'm, I'm sitting there and you're essentially going through the data, the genetic, the data of genetics in terms of gender and sex and how complex and complicated that is. And, and I could tell from your, from your presentation that you were passionate about this issue. And so the first question I kind of want to jump into is like, why is this issue so important to you? And obviously part of it is you've chosen it as a field. So maybe there was some initial interest, but why has it become something that is just, you just seem to care so deeply about this. Maybe, maybe spend a few minutes just telling us about why this is such an important issue to you. Thank you. Um, so this is actually the issue that led me to turn in my formal resignation in November of 2015. Um, Before that time, I had been pretty outspoken about several issues of the church, including this one. But um, when I listen to leaders who are regarded as prophets telling a whole sector of the people who um, they should love and support that they need to be disavowed, And this on top of years and years of looking at the data um, and knowing that there was a huge correlation with suicide among people in the church who were LGBTQ, um, it just made me angry. And, And there are lots of reasons for that. But the one thing that just kept occurring to me over and over again is that this is not a choice. This is not something that you can just like decide to get rid of by praying or reading your scriptures. And so I kind of started compiling all this data because I am a very logical person. I thought, if I can get this data out there, then people will stop pretending like it's a, it's a matter of choice because it's not a matter of choice. And so I'm like, okay, here's what happens in the embryo. Here's what happens during adolescence. Here's what happens with these brains. fMRI data. I'm going to show you fMRI data because you can't fake that. But the truth is, um, really, the only people who will give that data pause and think about it already are thinking about these issues in the background. Right. And, and I'm trying to picture. So you, so November 5th, 2015 happens. And up until that moment, like my faith transition started way before that but I saw uh, things happen along the way that I'm like okay I'll place hope in that and it felt like prior to that moment in time my gut told me like no they're going to figure this out and they're going to come around and maybe they don't talk to God but they're but they're good people they're gonna try to make sense of this and they're gonna figure it out and I, I didn't know the science behind behind all this stuff. It was just my gut that told me like something's not right here. And um, I, I can only imagine it had to have been like a hundredfold experience for you because this is the field you're in. Like you know the science of this. And here are these men who claim to be the mouthpieces of God who are putting policies and um, in, a, in a sense new doctrines in place that completely contradicts what we know 
And I don't mean like what we think, like what we know about this stuff that had to have been super hard on you. You know, so um, before 2015, I was having a lot of struggles with this issue and with lots of issues, um, a whole lot of them. But October of 2010, um, there was a talk by Elder Packer and he said something like um, being gay was impure and unnatural. And why would a loving heavenly father, quote unquote, do that? And I literally stood up. I was watching it at home. I stood up. I was like, I cannot believe he just said that. But I was recording it. So I went back and I listened to it over and over again. And I was trying to make sense of it because that was actually the first time I'd heard a prophet say something that I knew was not true. Like, no doubt. So um, the next day, I was actually really lucky. My bishop worked with me. He's also He was is also a biologist. Um James Madison University. And he was walking by my door and I'm like, Hey, I need to talk to you about something. And so I was like, did you hear what elder Packer said yesterday? And he told me he hadn't. So I told him, he's like, that's not true. So I had like you, I had these little glimmers of hope, like someone is going to do something and this is going to change. And so then I went to circling the circling the wagons, Mormon stories convention. Um, that was in Washington, D.C., and uh, Mitch Main and Carol Lynn Pearson were there. A lot of people were there. I'm still friends with so many of the people I met at that on that Saturday. And we were sitting in this church, and I just felt like all the spirit feelings really, really strongly. And these are like precious people who've endured tremendous struggle. And most of them had left the church, but here they were with their Mormon people. And it was just, it was like a sacred experience for me. Like when they sang and they were just really struggling to like have this acceptance. And I was really, really optimistic for a long time that this is going to change. Like a couple of the really old guys are going to die. This will change. You've just got to like, be open with the data, talk about these issues, being gay is not a choice. And like the more gay people that you come into contact with, um, inevitably, the more love you have for them. Like, that's just been my experience. And so I really did think things were going to change, but I pretty much lost all hope in 2012. And I hadn't really gone to church at all from 2012. Women wear pants to church day. That was in December till 2015, but I didn't feel the need to resign my membership until um, the disavowal rhetoric came forward on um, 2015 in November. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you've spent time academically in this arena. It's an issue you're passionate about. There's this conflict between your religious tribe and the things you're learning and coming to understand. Um, So we're going to dive into that, but we also have to set the conversation up because because you've spent so much time in this, I'm I'm sure you've thought about these things a thousandfold more than I have. And the thing I worry about, Crystal, is that uh, while I care and I have concern and I have empathy for for folks who are, are feeling this tension between their identity and their religious tribe... I'm not the best at wording things. I'm not the best at articulating 
how we have these conversations. And so I'm always worried as I first reach out to you, I'm like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen if I say the wrong word and I'm, I give offense? But as we're talking about the more larger general issue of, uh, you said LGBTQ, I've always said LGBT, again, it's a difference of rhetoric or articulating it and what is most comfortable and most appropriate and puts at ease those people that we're talking about who are on the margins. Maybe spend a few minutes kind of helping the listener, because I think this is a, a topic that they care about, help the listener better understand how to articulate some of these words or ideas so that they don't give offense. What are your what are your thoughts kind of in that arena? So I actually really appreciate this question. Um, when I initially started to develop this presentation, um, I've given it twice, once in Boise last March, well, March 2017, and then for the big Sunstone conference this year, last week. And, um, you know, I will fully admit I'm, I'm a, just an ally, but I'm aware that I'm an ally and that this is not my conversation to be having in terms of um, giving terminology that is correctly, like giving terminology that is accurate. So having known that, I, I do have students who are all sorts of um, varieties of these letters, LGBTQIX, and I simply reached out to them and I asked them if they would have a conversation with me and help me learn the correct terminology. Because it turns out, um, when I first gave this presentation, I had a slide in there that said transgendered individuals and that's really offensive and I truly had no idea so it is definitely worth pause when you are willing to have these conversations I feel to really think about what these letters stand for and sort of the spectrum that goes along with each one of these letters and and what the overall general idea is that you're trying to communicate so when I say LGBTQ and Really, I mean LGBTQIX. What I'm referring to is someone who does not fall within the binary that we are traditionally taught and, and that we think of when we talk about sex or sexuality or gender. So lesbian, gay, trans, can be transsexual or transgender, queer, intersex, asexual. And as I'm saying those words that go with those letters to you, like the craziest thing is happening in my brain because I'm thinking about the faces of these people that I've really, really grown to love who fall in every one of those categories. Mm. Um, one of the things I think we all have to kind of wrap our mind around, Crystal, and, and you're pointing to it already, is that each of these letters are their own unique segment Um and again, I'm, I'm just couching words. If I, if I offend anyone, I'm, I'm not trying to do that intentionally. I'm just trying to articulate what's going on in my brain. But each one of these letters stands for its own segment of society. It's not like we can just throw all these letters together and all these people that these letters represent and say like, oh, those are one people. In a way, like each of these people have their own uh, issues at the forefront that they're passionate about, their own, their own things that separate them from every other segment of this group, I, I think on some level we have to start seeing that the only reason we've bunched all these people together is because they've all been marginalized and they all need a voice and 
there's more power in kind of being together, but the, but the realization is that each of these are separate, right? You have exactly articulated this really big thing that we really need to take pause and think about once in a while. That's exactly right. Um, so let's jump into the data, and I want you to spend as much time here as you want to and help the listener understand, like, we... In Mormonism, again, it happens in the world. This isn't just a Mormon problem. It happens in the world. But what Mormonism does is Mormonism says, look, here's the theology of God. Here is the way in which God perceives uh, us as his creation. And here's what our roles are. And here's how we get back to him. And Mormonism articulates that by saying there's men and there's women and men look like this, and they act like this, and this is their roles in society, and this is their roles in the church. And then there's women, and women look like this, and act like this, and here's their roles in society, and their roles in the church. And it is uh, God's desire that a man and a woman, of course, if we go back to the 1800s, that's a different setup, but a man and a woman are to uh, be sealed in the temple, to, again, begin a family relationship, to have children, to perform their functions individually as male and female, and that's the way in which we get back to God. And once we understand the data, to be honest, that all falls apart. Uh, And I want you, again, to spend as much time, because I think for anybody who's listening, you're going to be uncomfortable if you are, the, the more orthodox you are, but I'm suggesting that you sit with this and you hold space for the science and for the data and for the facts. And, and again, I'm hoping that this data will help each of us kind of reformulate our opinions of, of if there's a God, like how he operates and what he thinks and what he believes in, because these things are such in conflict with each other. And so again, uh, take as much time as you'd like to do with that. So I really appreciate Um, being able to talk about this in the background of Mormon doctrine. Um, My husband is a never Mormon. In fact, he was raised completely without religion and he came to my Sunstone talk. So I felt he doesn't, he had not really been privileged to this part of my life. Um, It's something I don't talk about because it's not a badge of honor that I wear. It's something I'm extremely passionate about, but I keep it kind of private because it's a sacred topic to me. So I tell you this because during my presentation, I went in depth about the um, proclamation. I went in depth about roles for women, men, children, what is expected when males and females turn 18, etc. And I did that for a really important reason. And it is to point out that there are these very specific roles that are expected, um, and they're typically binary, that is, male and female. And then I specifically pointed out to um, parts of the proclamation that I find extremely problematic. So everybody knows, if if you've read the family of proclamation to the world, that the first presidency has released this document as scripture so that people understand where the church stands. And if you understand where the church stands, you know that this is regarded as scripture and there is no discussion about what is scripture and what is gray. It's all black and white. 
and so this is where the problem is. Um, in addition, this document has been the subject of study just maybe last year in Relief Society and the children were studying this and people were encouraged to memorize the whole thing. And the reason for that is so that we do not doubt as a church what the roles of male and women, or men and women, male and female, what they are and what is expected of our children. And this is where I gave, gave me such anxiety as an active church member. Like I never had it hanging on my wall. <clears throat> and so I'm going to get into why. So the first thing is the statement of uh, marriage between a man and woman and being ordained of God. Um, the second point that I'm going to make is against the statement that gender is an essential characteristic of individual pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. And um, let's see here. Uh, procreation should only be employed between a man and a woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife, etc. So what I knew, um, by the way, I joined the church in 2004. I was finishing up my graduate work at UVA. And um, I went into the church for a lot of reasons. Uh, members were so good to my daughter and I. It was probably one of the hardest times of my life. And thank goodness I had these amazing friends and they were Mormons. And I joined the church. Um, I brought in 16 of my friends who also joined the church. So it was something I really believed in. But I really was pretty unaware about these issues. Um, I'm not sure what I would have done if I had been more aware about um, the role and view of this proclamation. So what I can tell you is this. Um, there is not a binary that exists in biological processes. Everything is a spectrum. Where your heart is, how many beats per minute your heart beats, um, your skin color, your eye color, how many oocytes are in the ovary how many sperm are produced every single day by males. Like all these things are not one answer or nothing. They're all a spectrum. Everything is a spectrum. And that's the same way with um, sex characteristics and genitalia and um, the ability for your cells to recognize hormones. Like all these things exist in a spectrum. And gender, when you mention gender and the proclamation to the world, really what the church is saying that is that there are two sexes, male and female. And that's just not true. There is 1% of the population who falls into the intersex category. Like there are as many people who are intersex as there are people who are left-handed. Like this is not an anomaly, but we don't talk about it. And in fact, it's not something that was talked about in in uh, polite civilization until the last 20 years or so. So I really do think that people just aren't aware of the data. But that can't be said about the, the leadership of this church. And that is what really, really bothers me. So I feel like it's my job to go out there and say, I can provide evidence as to why the proclamation is not true. I, uh, I want to get the feel from you. So we're talking gender and we're talking sex. And could you maybe just for the audience, like, help us see why these are two different things and what each of those kind of stand for? Oh, gosh, absolutely. So sex is a little bit more easy to define. It is what is assigned when a baby is born 
and a physician looks at the genitalia. And typically, a child is going to fall into one of two categories, male or female, and it's going to be based on the length of either the clitoris or the penis. But the thing is, about one out of 100 babies are born with ambiguous um, external genitalia. So if it's like larger than um, three-eighths of an inch, but smaller than one inch, that is considered to be intersex. Um, it, it's an arbitrary measurement. And these children are then um, traditionally subject to chromosomal testing and then uh, invasive surgery. But here's the thing. When you have a child who has ambiguous external sexual um, sex genitalia, it's typically because things have not gone to plan developmentally. And so not only are you seeing these external effects on the genitalia, but there are also going to be a lot of other issues that you don't see. And this is going to help shape the brain. And this is going to help um, have different responses than one might expect at adolescence. So sex is this identity that is because of the chromosomes that we have as a male or female, but you have to remember that chromosomal abnormalities are fairly common and um, there are lots of genitalia uh, presentations that are outside normal or what we consider normal. And I really even hate to use the word normal. So not strictly male, not strictly female. So that is sex. Um, gender is basically a social construction, and it's based on what society tells us is okay. What is female? You know, I heard all growing up, oh, you need to do this and be ladylike and be graceful. And my brothers were told, oh my gosh, why are you playing with your sister's nail polish? All those things lead to gender identity. So gender identity, or how male or female, or in between someone feels is gender. And that's why I have a problem with the, the proclamation using the term gender as it does. It really means sex. And even that's wrong because there is more than just two sexes that exists. And then in addition to that, overlaid on all that, you have sexuality. How attracted and how desiring a person is to engage on an intimate level with another person or individuals. And all of those things lead to a huge amount of complexity. And that is why it's, it's horrifying to see um, the Mormon church and other churches say that one man should marry one woman and they should have five kids. Like it's just damaging and pretty inaccurate to what people feel is right for them. Right. Another question that I run into that I think we need to at least set up a little bit here is that um, I've gotten pushback because in the past, and I think we have to go back a little ways for for some of this, and some of this I think has only changed somewhat recently, but if we go back, uh, I get pushback in terms of people saying like, look, these things, and, and, I, and again, I'm going to be, the risk here is that I'm going to be hurtful to those who we're talking about because I'm trying to explain the orthodox position. Uh, and I, I want to be careful of that. But I get pushback because people will talk about these issues being mental illness and how in the past, our society, not knowing what to do with these things and the science not being as advanced, these things were categorized in uh, the medical 
books and journals as some type of mental illness uh, or some type of disorder and those and we know now those aren't appropriate but i still get lots of people who message me and say bill this this isn't like a and I'm going to use this word, which I know we all hate, normal, because what's normal? But they'll say, this isn't normal. This is a an anomaly. And maybe speak to, for a moment about where we've come uh, collectively on this in terms of how we label these things, uh, as well as recognizing like the difference between, uh, and I don't, even, I, don't, I don't even know how to articulate this, somebody being born with something we would call a disorder or an anomaly, Versus somebody who is uh, simply a segment outside the binary system, but certainly falls within such a range that it's addressed as, and I'll use this word, as a normal outcome of, of these things simply because of evolution or because of how genetics works. Like these things express themselves on a statistically regular basis that it is a standard part of our society, even if it's a small percentage. Yep, and I think that's that's where the data is extraordinarily powerful. So I mentioned this before, but I'm going to just mention it again. So outside of sexuality and outside of gender, what we know is this, this tiny little piece of physiological development, external sex characteristics, genitalia, 1% of all the babies that are born have an anomaly that is uncharacterized as either male or female. So let that sit with you for a second. That's an extraordinary number of people. So we can point to the data. We can say one out of 500 babies are born with this order, disorder. One out of 100 babies are born with this disorder. And these are all things typically that are chromosomally defined during development. There is no choice involved there. In addition, we have the role of hormones coming in, and you may not make the right form of the hormone, or your body may not be able to receive and, and recognize that hormone. All of these things are repeatable scientifically. We can do it in mice. We can do it in monkeys. We can do it in um, trial cells. And so this is something that can be repeatable. We can get the same results over and over and over and over again. So we know that there is a real process that is involved in the development of these particular cell types, right? So that's one thing. Another thing that I think is extremely powerful, and it's probably my favorite thing to share, is fMRI data. So this is the ability to image parts of the brain when there is stimuli out there that is designed to determine whether or not you have brain reaction differences between someone who is transgender or someone who is homosexual or someone who is bisexual. And what we see is that this is not a choice. This is not something that is a conscious decision. The brain does what the brain does without any thought as to what's right and wrong. It, it's able to interpret the stimuli and do what it does. And typically, people who identify as something other than strictly male or female, as a sex or as a gender or as a heterosexual person, are going to have very, very different brain differences that are statistically significant. They are published in peer-reviewed journals. In order to be published in a peer-reviewed journal, you have to undergo a process of extreme scrutiny 
by experts in the field. So when these things get to publication status, they have been vetted over and over and over again. This is probably years worth of data for one paper that's published. But what we see is this astonishing fMRI data, which backs up what these people have been telling us for decades. Right. And, and so when you say statistically significant, and obviously the other side of the coin is statistically insignificant, I think some people think like 1%, that's not statistically significant. And they're using it in the secular sense, but that's not what you mean. It, it seems, and again, I'll just throw this out and you can throw out anything else that clarifies it. Anything that is um, shows up in a way that we can gauge that it's going to show up. Like it's not statistically insignificant to the point where it's like, it could possibly just be an anomaly. And if we did the test again, it wouldn't show up rather any time that it is regular. It is uh, to the point that no matter how many studies we do, it's there and it's really close to that same percentage. That's statistically significant. Correct. Is that how we use that word in science? Yep. That's exactly right. So um, science is, and it's getting even harder to have publications because there has been a really extraordinary drive to make sure that your data is statistically what you say it is. So this is based on numbers. This is not based on emotion. You have to have a sample size or a number of individuals or groups that is large enough so that you can see variation. And But outside of that, outside of all the variation that's going to happen during experiments, you are still going to get a standard number or situation that is repeatable over and over and over again. So it's reliable data. It's something that's not going to happen because of random chance. Statistical analysis is no joke. It's something that's very, very um, harsh in terms of looking at data from a purely numerical point of view. And what the power of that is, is it allows a person to determine whether or not these events that you see, although they appear to be statistically extraordinarily low, they are not because of randomness. They are because of some design, some repeatability that you can show over and over and over again. So that is the beauty of science. If ever another parameter comes in and we see now suddenly our data is not showing up in the way that we thought it would, that is also publishable. And we say, now we are going to change our theory, and this is what we think is going on, and this is based on the new data that we've gotten. And so that's what's happened with sex, gender, and sexuality. It's not a mental illness. This is backed up by data. This is backed up by things that have nothing to do with consciousness. It's not backed up by simply doing um, interviews and having people fill out, uh, like, forms saying, how do you feel about this issue? I strongly agree. I agree, I disagree, I strongly disagree. It's not based on surveys anymore. It's based on data that has nothing to do with what a person thinks or feels about a situation, which is, I think, extremely powerful. Yeah, beautiful. So now walk us through some of these, um, how we would classify some of these differences. Like run us through maybe three, four, five, six, I mean, as many as you want to. Because I think I think these are interesting from the standpoint that once you understand how many ways this can kind of express itself in this arena that we're talking about, people begin to sense like, oh my goodness, like this is really serious. Um, one that I've spent a little bit of time 
myself, maybe you could even start here, uh, would be, I think it's androgen sensitivity syndrome, which I find fascinating in the sense that here is a person with male DNA who is in all of the sense of the word, it's possible for that person to be completely, uh, man, that's the wrong word. That's the wrong way to say it, Crystal. That person um, can look physically and feel like and claim to be a female um, your thoughts maybe on that one as well as maybe walking us through several others so that the audience can get a feel for like how complex this really gets. Okay. So this is where, this is where I feel like the fire got ignited in me as an undergraduate in college. And we had barely, barely talked about what can happen during embryonic development that allows individuals to fall outside typical, um, what is assigned as male and female. And it's probably what led me to do an embryology graduate program. So androgen sensitivity hormone. Um, I'm going to go very slowly and mention a couple things so that these common terminologies can be referred to when I talk about a couple of other of these categories that can happen during embryonic development. So really what you have is an embryo, and this embryo is formed by an egg that's ovulated by the female and fertilized by the sperm of a male. And in these egg and sperm, that um, gamete or sex cell has one half the chromosomal makeup of the parent that the sex cell came from. So we have 46 chromosomes normally as humans. And I say normally because there's there are individuals alive today, alive and well, who have 47 or 45, etc. But we're not going to get into that. So as a female, I give 23 of my chromosomes to each one of my egg cells. And as a male, you would give 23 of your chromosomes to each of your sperm cells. I am chromosomally XX. So I can only give X chromosomes to my offspring. You are XY. So your sperm has an equal chance of contributing either an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. So that means statistically you have an equal chance of having a male child or a female child, and it's because of the contribution of the sperm. So for androgen sensitivity hormone, what happens is you have a boy uh, chromosome embryo being made. So the sperm that fertilizes that egg is carrying a Y chromosome and not an X chromosome. And during the processes of development, something happens. So it's the inability of the body to recognize testosterone and other androgens. So androgen sensitivity in, sorry, androgen insensitivity syndrome is the inability for those growing babies to recognize testosterone and other male hormones. And male hormones are called androgens. And what happens is despite the presence of hormones um, during fetal development, that baby is not recognizing the hormones. And because of that, it d develops as a default female. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. So sometimes you can have some cells recognizing some of the hormone, and you can have a little bit of maleness forming during embryonic development. So maybe you'll have testes forming, or maybe the clitoris will be slightly enlarged. And that is what a penis is etc. So in the very extreme cases, 
these babies are born, they look completely female. There is no reason to suspect they're anything but female. And so they're assigned as female. And then during puberty, things do not go as planned. So secondary sex characteristics don't develop as they are um, supposed to, according to the to development plan. You have very small um, uh, external genitalia that is not changing. Breast development doesn't happen. But the biggest thing is that period or menarche is never established. And so at that point, parents start to get concerned. And they're like, my child is 14. She has never had a period. Maybe we should go see a doctor. And external um, evaluation typically goes pretty well, but internal evaluation is awry. That is, there's either a blind vagina or a complete lack of ovaries and a uterus. And then that's the first indication that there is something wrong. So they do a blood test. The blood test allows for the cells to be broken open, the chromosomes to be condensed and look at under the microscope. That's called a karyotype. And lo and behold, your daughter is XY, genetically male. And that's why her period never started. So that is androgen, sen androgen insensitivity syndrome. And the thing that's really interesting about this, although I gave you an example of the extreme, there's a spectrum in that too. You can have a slightly enlarged clitoris that looks like a penis, you can have partial development of testes. You can have partial development of testes and ovaries. It just depends on what cells were involved and how blind those cells were during embryonic development to testosterone and other androgens. I, I want to ask that before you go into some of these other ones. And I think this is just to make a note of like how, how unique this is to us when we first kind of pick up on these things. If we were to go and find a skeleton of someone who had androgen insensitivity syndrome, and I'm glad you corrected me there. Uh, if we were to go back and find some ancient ancestor skeleton that had this, I'm guessing that we would test the bones, test the DNA, and we would be like, that's a male, when in effect, it's not, that's not exactly, I mean, it could be a female in the full expression of that word in terms of how we use it in society. It also could be someone who's sharing characteristics and genetic traits from both, right? Absolutely. And I mean, that's the, that's the thing about this. Things are just a lot more complicated than most people realize and, and including researchers. Right. So tell us a few more of these, give us some others that uh, give us kind of a, an idea of, of all the directions that, that this can go genetically. So, Right along those same lines, um, in the 1970s, a, um, a chemical, DES, diethylstilbolestrol, was prescribed to women who had a high threat of having a miscarriage. And what they did not know is that DES also works as an endocrine disruptor. That is, it kind of mimics the same effects as ASI. And um, what that means is that genetic males were developing secondary sex characteristics at puberty because of the presence of this DES chemical in their body um, and in the fetal environment as they were forming embryonically. So it has been completely banned. It is not prescribed anymore. But the result of this is, in fact, a lot of people who were exposed to DES and genetic males are now transgender. So that happened to my friend Bobby. Um, Bobby is one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. 
and um, Bob was born um, and an adulthood Bobby realized that Bobby could not live the lie that she was living anymore she got a divorce um, Mormon uh, has three children and lives a very fulfilling life as a female and um, Bobby was exposed to DES as a growing fetus had no control over that and it led to um, a lot of identity issues so that's one of them um, Turner syndrome is also really interesting Turner syndrome results when there's a process called non-disjunction that happens during fetal um, well before fetal development non-disjunction happens as the egg cells or the sperm cells are being formed it's typically something that happens with the egg so this gets a, a little complicated but um, when your egg or sperm cells are being made in either the ovaries or testes there's this process by which one cell basically is going to, to divide so that it becomes four cells. And those four cells have half of the genetic um, complexity that the other cells do in the body. So sex cells have half the number of chromosomes than somatic cells. And when this process is happening, every once in a while, two of your chromosomes get pulled over to one of the cells, which means no chromosomes go over to the other side. So that's what Down syndrome is. So Down syndrome happens early on um, during egg or sperm development, and it's an extra chromosome, chromosome number 21 or trisomy 21, and it's an extra chromosome that gets pulled over during meiosis too. And so what's really interesting is in Turner syndrome, either the egg or the sperm, but typically the egg has, has non-disjunction happening, and one of the resulting sex cells does not have an X chromosome. But it's kind of okay because the other cell is carrying an X chromosome. So these individuals are referred to as XO. And what's also really interesting about this is that during um, embryonic development, really early on in a typical female, one of the X chromosomes is inactivated. There are too many products being made and the body recognizes that we don't need two X chromosomes making their gene products. So one of those X chromosomes is inactivated. However, it must be important to have two X chromosomes much earlier in development because individuals who only genetically have one X chromosome have pretty severe um, abnormalities. So the biggest uh, structural differences do not exist in the external genitalia upon presentation at birth. But during adolescence, these individuals also do not have periods or accomplished menarche. They have a really flat and broad chest. They have reduced number of secondary sexual sex characteristics. And their ovaries are really, really underdeveloped. And they do not ovulate, which is why they do not have periods. So that is Turner syndrome. And um, you can imagine the situation where if you are a sex cell that has undergone non-disjunction, and one of your sex chromosomes is missing in that cell, the other cell that came from that event is going to have an extra chromosome. So an extra X or two Ys. And that also happens. So there are individuals who are Kleinfelters who have an extra X chromosome. So for extra X chromosomes in Kleinfelters, what that individual's chromosome looks like is two X's and a Y 
or two X's and two Y's or four X's and a Y. So you can imagine like this gets really complicated. But in all these cases where you have more than one X and at least one Y, it's referred to as Klein filters. So the Y chromosome is magic. The Y chromosome is very small compared to all the other chromosomes in the body. And it has very limited capacity to make gene products. But one of the gene products that it makes is located on the SRY region of the Y chromosome. And that, what, that is what leads to androgen production or maleness. So a Klinefelter's individual has an, a Y chromosome and therefore presents as male at birth. However, because there is a presence of more than one X chromosome, they have very, very reduced size of external genitalia. They also are going to um, have issues that are considered abnormal at puberty. They have less hair on their bodies. The testicles do not develop. The penis stays very small, typically less than two centimeters long. But again, many times this is not recognized until after puberty. So that is Klinefelter's syndrome. Mm, so, so interesting. Um, I want to ask a, a question here, and, and I just you can just put your opinion. I, I'm going to recognize, and I hope our audience recognizes that on some level, I'm asking you to kind of go off into the weeds a little bit and go beyond the science, uh, but maybe more of your own, just your own thoughts. So one of the conversations, I have, I have a, a lesbian couple. They're really good friends of mine, and we spend... We're together practically every weekend, uh, getting together and just talking about kind of the deeper questions of life. And the one of them uh, approached me and said, like, why, like when we talk about um, homosexuality, for instance, someone who's born as a lesbian or gay, that that shows up a certain percentage in our population. I think the, the debate is somewhere between four and eight, and I think most studies talk about it being right in the middle there at six. And her question was like, why is it 6%? And, and my answer back to her was that's what evolution has deemed the most efficient percentage to keep our, our, our human race, our, us as a people, um, as surviving. And, and, and I find that question interesting that when we look at these segments that show up that are minute but still statistically significant i'm and again i'm setting god aside as i ask this question i'm struck by the fact that each of these segments have in my mind unique gifts to offer our society even something like a person with down syndrome which is a genetic uh, anomaly that shows up in a statistically uh, significant portion of our society. And I look at the ability for us to then develop empathy and care by taking care of these individuals who need a little more help. And I'm struck by the idea that with any one of these segments, if we could begin to wrap our, our heads around the idea that evolution has deemed it best for our society if we have these uh, portions of these people who have differences and hence different gifts to offer us, that that's actually deemed by evolution as useful to us. 
And I'm, I'm curious maybe on your thoughts on that question. And again, I'm, I'm asking you maybe to delve off into space that isn't, isn't a scientific um, uh, question and answer, but just your personal feelings. I'm actually super excited you asked me about that because that was really where my faith crisis began because I was being told things like, um, hate the sin, but love the sinner. And this is how males should act. And this is how females should act. And, but I knew, like, I knew these statistics where homosexuality or bisexuality or polysexuality are at fixed rates in the population. So I'm like, something, there, there's something that does not ring true to logic to these emotional things I'm being told at church. So what I found was that it's backupable. <laughs> like, you can look at the data and be like, whoa, hey, guess what? When you have identical twins that are forming in the womb and one of them later identifies as heterosexual and one of them identifies as homosexual, there are reasons that can be backed up in their physiology that say, hello, this is not strictly a genetic program. It's exposure to things in the environment, particularly the fetal environment, that feed into this decision. So what I'm referring to is a, a study that was done showing that um, identical twins who are genetic clones of each other, right? So they express the same genes, they express the same proteins. that's why they look and talk and act so similar. But in this case, they were looking at identical twins for whom one was heterosexual, one was homosexual. Um, and there were some physiologic, physiological measurements being made, particularly the one that's pointed out in the paper is the ratio of the link of the index finger to the ring finger and um, that correlated with either a an identity to heterosexuality or homosexuality. And the reason for that is that the ratio links between those two digits on your hand have to do with the amount of testosterone exposed to during the fetal development. So although these, ba although these babies are identically the same genetically, the environment that they are, are enclosed in, even in the womb, can be significantly different enough to allow for these physiological differences to take place, which correlate strongly with homosexuality or heterosexuality. And that's just one example. So there are plenty of examples where we can point to the data, this fixed set of numbers in our population as humans goes back to something that is, is um, founded upon science. So we can look at the data and mine it out and say, this is not an accident. This is not something that we don't understand. This is not an anomaly that is because of a mutation or because of an event that went wrong. It's because of that's how we are as humans. And there's a huge spectrum of all sorts of things that we don't even know about. But this is one of the things that we do know about. Right. And I know that behavioral scientists have done studies, for instance, on lesbians and gays in terms of the benefits they offer to society. And even something is like, like one of the strangest ones that I remember, but it just it doesn't make sense to me. But yet it is a scientific fact is that we like to think, for instance, if if there's a gay male in a family like, oh, my goodness, that's it. That means there's less children. Therefore, the human race has been somehow got received a nick into it. And the reality is they've studied this issue. And in families where uh, a gay person um, is is part of that family, later generations for, for some scientific reason actually have more children. So there's these benefits um, 
to these segments of our society that we don't, that sometimes are even the opposite of what we think. Like we ought to just sit in this space and just like start understanding the data and realizing that each of these segments have something to offer and that the moment we can see it that way, like it changes our mind frame from seeing these folks as, um, and unfortunately in Mormonism, we see them as a burden. We see them as something to be uh, ignored or dismissed or deflected from. And the reality is, can we just sit with these individuals and recognize the great things they have to offer and, and to see them as part of the human family? Uh, anyway, I just, I wanted to make that point. Um, can I add to that? I, please. Okay. So what we also know is that gay and lesbian couples typically will adopt children and they have some of the lowest child abuse rates that are documented and out there. And so obviously that's a huge benefit as a contributing parent to these children's lives. Yeah. And, and we ought to tie that into Mormonism because Mormonism has at times in society too, has given us the idea that anytime there's sex abuse, we ought to look to the uh, one of these segments first as the as the culprit where that behavior comes from. And as you're pointing out, it's simply the opposite. That's not the reality. It's insane. Like I, when I started delving into this as a church member, as a 30 year old person, I'm 42 now, I was like, this is exactly the opposite of what I'm learning in church. And that is why I started speaking out and being like a super ally, going out, talking to people, hearing their experiences, reading the data, learning the science, because we cannot lie to our people. We cannot get up there as a people and say, this is the truth when it's provably false. Like that is my passion right here because it's just provably false. Right. And the, what, the point you just discussed in terms of the lower rate of child mistreatment and child abuse, it, it shows us that if we could find a way to welcome to validate, to um, appreciate these folks into our religious tribe, into our society at large, like any family who openly accepts this person into their group, into their group dynamics of a family or a tribe, these people are going to help all of us be better at taking care of each other. And that to me feels a whole lot more, if there's a God, that feels a whole lot more like where he would come from than, than always this us versus them mentality. Like, oh, here's us and there's them and them is a danger and a threat to us. When rea in reality, we're all human beings and all of these different segments together actually benefit us as a tribe. I totally agree. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about me, and I promise it relates to what we're talking about. Um, I grew up in foster care. I got married super young. I got divorced when I was 28 years old. And within the first several months of being divorced, I was a single mom, had a, had a daughter with me who was seven years old. And so when the missionaries came to my house and they accepted me, they loved me. I had stuff to do every Monday, every Wednesday, every Saturday, every Sunday. They were genuinely happy that I was part of their group. They would call me. They would show up and bring me food. Someone brought me a Christmas tree. Like I felt so loved 
But every once in a while in church, I would hear about what a burden it is to have single mothers as part of the society. And that felt really terrible to me. But I still loved the way that the people around me and my individual connections were treating me. So I decided that that was not a huge deal. I cannot imagine being so well accepted and also being a gay or a lesbian person in the church because it is something that is harped on so much. And I know how much it hurt me every time single mothers were mentioned when I was around. And from men on the pulpit talking about what a burden they are, but what is great is the love that the members of my wards showed me. So I got to be in the singles ward and a family ward because I had a daughter, but I was young. <laughs> so I got all these people in my life and that's where my heart goes is these individuals like Mormon raised, that's your tribe. Like there's so many things that you have in common with people when you're Mormon because you're Mormon. But if you're, if you're cast aside or if you're kind of given this side eye and you're not fully fellowshipped and loved, that's terrible. Like that's rejection. And so we've got to change the rhetoric about this subject so that people understand that this is not a decision. This is not mental illness. This is biology. And if we believe in a heavenly father who creates us the way that we are perfect, right? There are no, there are no, God don't make no junk. If we actually believe that, we're going to have to step up and be like, all right, church, what you're saying does not ring true. And we've got to we've got to change. We've got to reframe this conversation and accept people as they are for who they are, because they're awesome. And they're really good moms. They're really good dads. They're really good friends because, good gosh, they have gone through some struggle. And that's why they are so empathetic and kind and listening and contributing to society. Yeah, when I when I look at if I'm critical for a moment of scripture, and I'll tie this in what we're talking about, when I'm, if I look at scripture, I look at the Bible, and I and I deeply believe those are myth stories, and they were created with in a deep level of ethnocentricity. Not that sometimes it doesn't bounce out of that, but that for the most part, it speaks from that tribal voice, and so there's always this labeling of us versus them, and. Some and I want the listener to understand like some of this gets silly. Like if you go back to the Bible and you read it as a person who is left-handed, you will sense quickly that, oh my goodness, this this us is right-handed and them is left-handed, and everything that's right-handed is clean, and everything done with the left hand is dirty. And so there's that idea of doing it. But today we've grown out of that. People who are left-handed, I believe it's about 10% of our society is left-handed. In fact, uh, don't judge me, but when I was born, I was actually meant to be left-handed. My dad kept taking the crayon out of my left hand and putting it into my right hand, and eventually I became right-handed rather than left-handed. But that left-handedness carried with me throughout my life. Uh, when I played baseball, I was able to be a switch hitter. When it came to basketball, I could dribble just as well with my left hand as my right hand. Um, I simply point that out because as a society, we got to the point where we said, that is silly. It's silly to judge somebody based on what handed they are. Like, it just is what it is. And while it is a much smaller portion of our society who's left-handed, we don't go around making fun of left-handed people. We don't go around um, distancing ourselves from those who are left-handed. If we can begin to see these segments as just as normal as being left-handed, even if it takes some time for us to better understand it, 
man, we could come so far. I, I want to hit on, uh, we talked about this already in, in a question I asked earlier. I want to make sure that we've covered all the ground on it. Um, that these, this is not an accident. This isn't, uh, something that, that like, I'm trying to think offhand. Maybe you can help me, Crystal. There are certain things within genetics that at this point still are statistically insignificant, correct? Um, absolutely. And, you know, I'll just give you a really big example. Every single day when your cells are dividing, they incorporate mutations at like one to every 10 million cells. But most of those hidden areas, those mutations hit in areas that don't code for anything important. So you don't even know that they exist. So that's just one example. But yeah, there are plenty of things that are insignificant not only in terms of how frequently they occur, but also the severity of the issues caused because of their occurrence. Beautiful. So there are cells within me, obviously, that have done that. Um, we, we ought not to see these things at, in that same way. This is something that is uh, evolutionary uh, intentional. This is something that is genetically uh, intentional in terms of it happening in a way that can be measured and can be can is measured as consistent. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Mormonism. You you hit on it in the very beginning that there is this tension that Mormonism has set itself up and entrenched itself in a binary system. I want to get your thoughts maybe on if you want to talk further about that conflict, but um, maybe. Um, more importantly, we'll, we'll go off in another direction about where society has got to change, what, what kind of advancements are happening and where you see that going. And then we'll end kind of talking about maybe what kind of change is going to have to happen in the church, but at least first kind of start us off um, with, with maybe any other further comments you've got on the conflict between Mormonism uh, in its binary theology versus what the science is telling us. So um, nothing is binary in biology, nothing. Eye color, skin color, none of that. It's not binary. And it's, it's something that you can gather data for and prove, and people will believe you and be like, good job, you've proved it. However, when we talk about things like sex and gender and sexuality, people are hesitant to have the conversation because people that they respect and institutions that they are loyal to have told them otherwise. And I don't understand why, but... So I've been teaching at the higher education level since 2005. That's 13 years. When I first started, I was teaching biology of women, and I would teach about intersex. I would teach about insensitivity syndromes for hormones, etc. And as I'm standing up there, I'm really like, what's really important to me is to gauge what my students are thinking by looking at them. How uncomfortable are they? How curious are they? Are they bored to death? So it's something I've been constantly doing for the last 13 years. And so I, little by little by little, started bringing in the science behind bisexuality, homosexuality, transgender. And I can tell you from a, a professor who is in Boise and who just finished teaching up genetics for the summer yesterday, when I talked about sexuality and gender and sex identity um, this time, and I've noticed it for the last five years, people are curious, they ask questions, they send me emails afterward. They say, thank you. I have never heard this in my life. And they want the data. They are accepting their peers. They love their gay friend sitting next to them. They love their lesbian roommates. 
they love them. And so it's up to this new generation to perpetuate those ideas. Like when I look at children and I see how accepting they are of gay people around them, I think, wow, those parents are doing a good job. So what that's going to have to translate into is um, younger generations putting pressure on the church to be like, but this is not true. Like this is what you're teaching is false. And to be able to speak out against this without feeling um, threatened that they'll be like excommunicated or disciplined or something. So it's going to have to change. I don't know how it's going to look, but it has to change. And society is ready for it. Like we don't, we don't hear as often about gay bashing or lesbians being killed, although it does still happen. Um, really what the struggle is right now is for trans people. And it is astonishing what trans people go through um, in terms of society and acceptance. And I am actually scared for trans people on a regular basis. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, it, it feels like the longer the church waits, the the greater the divide. And what I mean by the divide is that the members of the church have placed trust in the church's leaders that they are prophets, seers, and revelators and communicate with God. Um, somewhere along the way, had the church began making this shift at the same time society did, it would have been easy to claim that prophets, seers, and revelators are simply fallible. And that that they needed society around them to make progress before they knew to even ask the questions. And, and that would have made sense. It would have been, I think it's still a tough adjustment, but it would have made sense. And I think most members would have uh, made the shift with the church and would have stayed on board. The longer the church waits, society, it's, one, it's, it's just one more issue. And it's, I think, one of the stronger issues in terms of, of members of the church like going like, wait a minute, how come the world which we teach as being bad and evil and fallen seems to always be ahead of us in making these shifts and changes? And the longer we wait on this issue, it is so dramatic for our theology that if you can imagine going 20 years into the future, 50 years into the future, 100 years into the future, once society fully wraps their hands around how complex and how non-binary this is, Mormonism is going to look silly. And I have a hard time believing that uh, people are going to join a church that makes this issue like, like this is where we're drawing a line in, in the sand and we're not going to move. On the other hand, if it begins to move at that point, there's such a divide that there's going to be a huge risk of members losing trust and faith in the system and in its leaders. And I know these leaders in Salt Lake sense this, and I know there is a lot of trepidation about how do we start to move and not be so far behind that it can look prophetic while at the same time not confusing our members and having them lose trust and obedience and loyalty to us. Um, it, it hurts my heart to know that we can't just do the right thing for the sake of it being the right thing, but that we have to couch it within like how slow do we do this in order to bring people along so they don't lose faith in us and the reality is the moment you ask yourself that question, there was reason to lose faith in you. I 
100% agree with you. So um, that's why I resigned my membership in 2015, because I feel like the church has access to all the same data you and I have access to. Like this, this is clearly something where it's a deliberate decision and therefore not driven by prophecy to exclude members of the community. And so I ask myself this question a whole lot, Bill, and I'm, I'm like, what is, go- what is it going to take before the church actually changes its policy or teaching or rhetoric or amends the, the proclamation? And maybe it's Dan, Dan Reynolds. I don't know. But I feel like the church is either going to have to change their rhetoric or excommunicate the guy. And if he gets excommunicated, there's going to be a huge uproar. But they can't allow for this really outspoken individual with a huge following to say, hey, you were you were created perfectly and you're gay or, hey, you were created perfectly and you're trans. And I'm really sorry that my event was so unwelcoming towards you because people are looking to him and then they turn around and they look at the church and they look back at him and they look at the church. They're like, he's full fellowship. He probably could get a temple recommend if he wanted one. So what's going on here? And and if the church changes its policy and says, you know what? God has revealed to us that we were wrong and we're going to implement these new policies. Marriage can be between people who love each other. Anger is going to set in because so many people, especially people's children, have killed themselves over this. And they're going to be pissed off that their kids suffered so much during their life that they chose death. And what do you do with that? I don't know. But what I can tell you is this. The Episcopal Church for the last, what, five, ten years has been accepting of the LGBTQIX community and been like, you know what? We love you. We accept you. We're going to make you a bishop. You're a lesbian. Cool. That's fine. Let's lead a congregation. And that's how you do it. I don't know what the church is going to do, but what they're doing right now is completely unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. The, the longer they wait the greater the cognitive dissonance when a shift happens and the greater the cognitive dissonance on those who recognize on their own that this isn't adding up. Um, I, I, this was the issue that woke me up in a, in a, like I knew the history was messy. I knew we had a racist past. It was this issue that woke me up to like, oh, this doesn't add up. <clears throat> We're not treating people the way the data says we should treat them. Uh, I can only imagine how much harder this is going to get. And, and again, I, I understand their trepidation, but their trepidation is based on having set up a system that doesn't mesh with the science. And, and that's nobody's fault but the system's fault and those who hold up that system. Um I want to obviously society is adapting and it's, and it's even sad at those at the rate society adapts, how resistant we are to these changes. And as you point out, it's in the air. Like, like we don't get bothered by left-handedness anymore. We don't get bothered by a lot of other um, minority segments that are in our society that express themselves in different ways. I'm not talking just ethnicity. I'm talking all these kinds of expressions. It, It only comes when, these differences are counter to sacred parts of our identity that we tend to dismiss and deflect and not want to talk about it. But society's beginning to wake up. 
uh, maybe give us an idea. Where do you think we are in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? What are some of the things that are kind of coming down the pipe that you think are going to have a huge influence on this issue? Um, I think, I mean, this sounds super insensitive, but I think as more members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency die, and they are inevitably replaced by younger people, as is going to happen, who have had more life experience, that's where the shift is going to be. But I don't think that we're going to see anything significant change in the next 10 years. I really hope I'm wrong about that. They've had, the church has had so many opportunities to backpedal and pray and get different revelation than they have gotten. And instead they're doubling that. And I mean, so because I've seen this pattern over and over again, and every time it hurts me, it might makes my heart hurt, my stomach hurt. Every time it happens, I'm like, okay, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but maybe 20 years, maybe we'll see a shift. But in the meantime, people are going to be educated. I'm going to get up there in front of my genetics class. I'm going to inform the, the minds of people who are going to become doctors and physicians and nurses and dentists. And I'm going to be like, look at this. This is the data. I know that you are raised Mormon because 30% of my students are, but I want you to know the data and I want you to know and think for yourself about these issues. Please don't dismiss them. Please think about these. And that's how change is going to happen, but it's not going to be happening fast. Right. Um, the, the thought I'm thinking about is, is that while, whether they know it or not, the theology of Mormonism is already lost. Like it's already lost the battle. It doesn't make sense with the science and the science is only going to further bear out these ideas. And those ideas are only going to become more prevalent and more consistent in the awareness of us as the human race. And, and so they can double down, but at some point there'll be a church. I mean, if they continue to hold that ground at some point, they're a church of 500,000 instead of three to 5 million who are active. And I know members are going to go, no, wait a minute, we're 15 million. No, no, no. The activity rate among Mormons is about 30 to 35%, and millennials are leaving in droves. They are 73% of millennials are inactive by the age of 21. Um, once we understand that data, that the younger generation is just gone, and that this, this science isn't going anywhere, it's only going to be f further bared out, and in our awareness, the church has already lost um, and, and if it doesn't make the, sh the sooner it makes the shift, the better, even if we disrupt the older members right now, we better start thinking about how to keep these younger people because when the older people are gone, there's going to be nothing left. Um, I want to say, Crystal, thank you. Like this subject's important. And I, and I know that as some Orthodox members have listened to this, that they were really uncomfortable. And I know that things would, were said that were very contrary to your beliefs, I would simply ask, as Crystal's asking, like, sit with it, hold space for it. The other side of the coin is that for those who are listening, who, who um, identify in some of these areas that we've talked about, I, I just want to say, I'm sorry if I gave any offense at all. And I hope you can sense in my voice, my want to be sensitive and empathetic. I would, I would simply welcome anybody after listening to this episode, if, if I can better formulate my conversation would you please reach out to me? And I would love to have a conversation on how I can be better at talking about these kinds of issues. Crystal, you've been amazing. And it's, I think it's super helpful. Um, I think 
the data speaks for itself and you understand the data really well. And I just want to thank you for being on and for being so passionate about this idea that, because this, this data, while it's science, you're, you're saving lives as much as the person sitting down with somebody who's, who's on the verge of taking their own life. Like the data itself is saving lives. So thank you. You know, I actually feel the same way. And I'm, I'm really honored that you asked me to talk about this a little further. And I too, um, I want feedback. So if I'm saying something that could be stated another way that's less offensive, I'm always, always just really pleading for that because I know that this is all um, something that I don't have personal experience with. And so I'm just going on what I see and what I hear. And I also make mistakes. So thank you. Um, I just encourage everybody to take a look at the science, pubmed.gov, P-U-B-M-E-D dot G-O-V. Just do a Google search type of search in there and you'll find all sorts of data and I'd be happy to talk about it with anyone. Excellent. And also for the listener, I'll, do you mind if I put your PowerPoint on with the episode? No, I think that would be great because it will let people spend their own time with the issues that they're most concerned about. Away from the interview, I'm, I want to get with you too as well as and get you to maybe send me as many links as you think would be helpful to somebody who says, because somebody's going to listen to this episode. They're going to say like, uh, here's all the data and I'm confused. I don't understand that. I want to better understand this issue. Where do I go from here? Would you mind if we get together and you kind of just send me as many things as you want? And I'll include all of them on this episode so that the person who is not as informed, who this is providing some cognitive dissonance, that they have a place to go off and learn for themselves and make their own decisions on where this data goes. Yeah, that's essential. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. So Crystal, thank you so much. And again, this meant the world to me. Um, this was one of, I think, the most important episodes I've done in this podcast. So thanks for being on. Oh, wow. Thank you. No, it's been such a pleasure. Awesome. Go